0: Uh, have just been very much intrigued about World War II in that era. There's a lot of things that intrigue me about World War II, but what probably intrigues me most is how quickly a nation got up to speed and engaged as the United States of America. There's a lot of historians who spend a lot of time talking about how long it took us to actually get into the war effort and why did we wait so long but I'm also amazed that those historians that are right will rightly look at the fact of once we decided how quick we got up to speed. I'm amazed by that. I'm amazed that so many plowboys, if you will, with almost no reservation, with very little training, got on boats and went across the Atlantic to fight the German machine. I'm amazed at what happened on the home front. It's amazing to me in the home front, in the United States of America, not long ago, there was actually something called rations. I have to read about that. I've never experienced that. But that we actually had rations, and you had to have a ration card to get things like eggs and sugar. And we rationed gas. I've even heard we rationed coffee. And my soul says, oh my. I'm amazed that people built victory, planted victory gardens so that they could not have to use the vegetables uh, that would uh, normally go to the grocery stores and those could be sent straight overseas. I'm amazed that the workforce, women in the workforce increased by something like 12% in just two years as women went to the factories to help build bombs and build airplanes and just provide to put food on the table. We were a country with a mission. And we made honestly unbelievable sacrifices. Because we had a common mission. I don't think you would see that level of sacrifice today without a lot to get us there. You know what though? The truth is, if you look at our churches today... I think we lack a common vision of a common mission. I think you don't see a lot of sacrifices because I don't think we understand the mission we're called to. God has clearly called us as the people of God to mission. And inasmuch as He's called us to mission, He's called us to sacrifice. And inasmuch as we obey, we will be on mission. Well, if I'm going to ramp us up to the book of Judges... That comes that point isn't just out of the thin air. hopefully you'll see that comes right out of the book of judges. but we've been walking through the Old Testament. if you remember, we started uh, looking even at Genesis we saw in the very first chapters of the Bible that God created man in his own image and God created man to enjoy God and inasmuch as man experienced the full presence of God he experienced complete fulfillment and joy man was completely fulfilled not because he had a bunch of stuff but because he experienced the immediate presence of God And sadly, this was majorly altered. It was altered when our first parents, acting as our representatives, chose instead of obeying God to disobey God. And at this point, the innocence for humanity was was lost. But lost with it also was the constant, immediate access to the presence of God. Every man and every woman living after the fall feels the constant ache And longing, but not having access to the presence of God. That is why, no matter how much stuff you accumulate, no matter how important you may feel you are, no matter what you experience on this side of heaven, there will come a time when your heart will ache and long. As the great philosophers, theologians said you will find yourself saying, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But God in His mercy did not leave us there. In Genesis, in chapter 17, He makes a promise to Abraham that is incredibly helpful. He says this in Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God made a promise to Abraham, an undeserved promise, and He promised him a land and He promised him a people. He promised them that his people would be the special people of God. And then in God's providence, and only God pull us off in his providence, he takes the descendants of Abraham and he allows them to go down into captivity for 400 years. And he used Joseph to lead them there. And we watched as he led them there and we got to walk through Exodus as he walked them out of Egypt in miraculous ways. God used Moses to get them close to the promised land, but God would not allow Moses to take them into the promised land. But He did use Moses to do something really, really important. God used Moses to deal with a major problem. Here is the problem. God is holy and perfect. The people are neither. God is holy and perfect. The people are neither. So God... Does, uh, sets up a system of sacrifices and rituals whereby the people, uh, w- it would help the people in two ways. One, it constantly reminded the people of the difference between them and God. That's one thing it did. That's what those sacrifices did. Day in and day out, when they ma- made sacrifices, they realized He's God, I'm not. But the second thing, in God's great mercy, it did for the people. Even though they didn't enjoy the immediate, constant presence of God, by those sacrifices and by the tabernacle, they got to enjoy some partial of the presence of God. All of those events make up what happened in Exodus, New, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then Pastor Chad, last week, walked us through uh, the book, or not last week, two weeks ago, the book of, of Joshua. So I want us to see point one this morning in our uh, time in Judges. From, and we'll look at this together in a moment, chapter 1, 27 through 26. Half Half-hearted devotion constantly tempts God's people. Let me say it again. Half-hearted devotion constantly tempts God's people. Joshua led the people into the promised land. This land is the same land that was promised to Abraham. So they finally get there. But when they get there, it's inhabited by a lot of different folks. It's inhabited by the Amorites and the Hittites and the, uh, the Canaanites. So what are the people to do? There's a land that's promised to them that God has promised, but it's inhabited by other people. What are they to do? Now, the kindergartner and all of us responds, well, they should share it, right? Um, Well, uh, that's fair. That would get you a good star in kindergarten, but it's going to be wrong according to what God asked them to do. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Clearly, this is what God said. This is Moses. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations from uh, more numerous and mightier than you. (laughs) That's got to be somewhat promising. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and you shall show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. The anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash them in pieces, their pillars, chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. That's what God wanted them to do. Let me summarize The inhabitants of the land are a wicked people, enemies of God. God has determined to use you Israelites to judge them. And in so judging them, you are to fully destroy them. If you fail to fully destroy them, they will fully destroy you. They have no love for the things of God. It's pretty straightforward, right? I'm going to give them over to you. But you better fully destroy them. And that's exactly what happened in the book of Joshua. Things are even going well into the first half of the first chapter of Judges. (laughs) Doesn't get far in. The first half of the first chapter. And then things tragically turn. Look with me at Judges verse 27. Chapter 1 verse 27. Tell me if you sense a pattern. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth-shean and its villages, or Teanach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Abelim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. When well, Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Verse 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alob or Akzib or Helba or Afik, or Rahab. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. Let me summarize. <laughs> they partially obeyed God. They partially obeyed God. That is, they did at least engage these people in warfare. And they attempted to drive them out. But they disobeyed fully, driving them out exactly as God had told them. Make a note of this. Partial obedience is always disobedience. This is what we would call the sin of omission versus the sin of commission. A sin of omission is failing to do something that you're supposed to do failing to do something that is the right thing to do. The sin of commission is actively engaging in something that is wrong to do. Now, I'll be quite honest with you, just as a side note, if you press this distinction really hard, it breaks down in a hurry. All that said, it's still somewhat helpful. The people failed to do what God asked them to do. They failed to conquer the land that God had given them, and God determined to judge them because of their sin. The people did not fully obey God. All right, so we get the problem. We see what happened. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm imagining for you right now, and it's fair, it, this feels very foreign to us. Like, okay, that, that was a bad thing they did, but exactly how does that fit into what we are? I mean, we aren't really called to actively war against another people and take their land, are we? Um, No, we're not. Uh, If you feel that that's the active call of God upon your life, please let us know. We need to have pastoral counsel with you immediately. Um, You are not following the things of God. No, God has not called us to actively war against another people and take their land. Hear me. God has called us to make kingdom ground and to conquer darkness. By making disciples. By spreading the truth of the gospel. Deuteronomy 7 laid out the mission of God for the people of God in Israel for their day. Our Lord Jesus laid out the mission for us in Matthew 28 of our mission today. When our Lord Jesus commanded us, Go there for and make disciples This is our mission. We today, as the church of Jesus Christ, are to conquer kingdom ground by making disciples. We've seen it firsthand in the book of Acts. Pastor Charlie has walked us through this very helpfully and shown us that every believer was called, was engaged in making disciples in the early church As we make disciples across every race and neighborhood, through every tribe and every tongue, we conquer kingdom ground. The Israelites were tempted to partially obey God, but not make the full sacrifices for full obedience. Are we not also tempted to partially obey God? Are we not tempted to be happy with our salvation, content with not actively sinning like other folks might, and neglect to clear call of God to actively engage in the mission of God. I can speak for myself. I can speak for my family. We are tempted. If we fail to actively pursue making disciples, we are no less disobedient than the Israelites were in their failure to remove the people from the land. Inasmuch as they failed to do so, they disobeyed God. Inasmuch as we failed to do so, we disobey God. Partial obedience, half hearted devotion constantly tempts God's people. Point two. Half-hearted devotion leads to idolatry. Half-hearted devotion leads to idolatry. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 11-13. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the bells in the ashtray. Tragically, the people of God turned their backs on God. Notice the language. They abandoned the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They rejected the very God who brought them out of captivity. Friend, if you're here today, and you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Every time we give in to t- temptation, this is the language used of our senselessness. He or she abandoned the Lord who died to bring him out of the bondage of sin. It is always senseless for anyone to sin. It's incredibly senseless for the people of God to continue to sin. I think this text helps us see that there's often a progression from sins of omission to sins of commission. That is, believers who fail to actively engage in the mission of God put themselves in grave danger falling into sins of idolatry. Whether this be sexual sin or greed or covetousness or discontentment. A Christian... Failing to conquer kingdom ground is living a very awkward life. You might liken it to how awkward it would be for a U.S. Marine to go and set up his household inside of active enemy territory. What are you doing and expecting to get here? A Christian failing to conquer kingdom ground is ripe for temptation, prone to wander, and more of a kingdom liability than he is a kingdom asset. I would argue that this diagnosis fits most of the church in the West today. Statistics show that the sexual morality, divorce rates, and financial debt of those in the church is indistinguishable from those outside of the church. But you know, before we get to those issues, why don't we take one step back and ask about the mission-mindedness of the average church member years before these started showing themselves. I think you will find for many that church has become a spectator sport. Here I am now, entertaining. I think you will find that disciple-making, if done at all, is done by the clergy and the clergy alone. And I think you will find that active sacrifices for the gospel are as hard to find as workers for the nursery. We are called to mission. We are called to advance the kingdoms. Our churches, they need to be simplified to accomplish this task. And our philosophies must change Let us work for it here as a church. Let's fight for it here as a church. Let's pray for it here as a church. Let's be active at taking kingdom ground. Let's see the mission and make the sacrifices. I have to tell you, I have a deep longing in my soul to see this from young people. Why? Because to be quite honest, if it happens there, it's going to be a lot easier to make the habit now than it is later. Over a generation of young people who care about memorizing scripture as much as sports tats. Who spend half the time in prayer as they do in the gym. Who care a tenth about what they allow their eyes to see and their ears to hear as they do about the calories and saturated fats they allow in their mouths. And who spend even a fraction of the time keeping up with unreached people groups as they do with celebrity gossip. God, give us a generation of young people. I wasted so much time As a young person asking silly questions like, well, how is this really harmful instead of asking God glorifying questions like, is it necessary? How will this advance the kingdom? We don't need dozens of young people living for the kingdom like this. We only need a few. We need a few to blaze a trail that others can walk down. We just need a few who are tired of normal and popular, who are God-fearing enough to look this world between the eyes and say, You have nothing lasting to offer me. God is enough for me. We fight idolatry by fighting for the kingdom. I caught this analogy as I was thinking of the sermon. Imagine a soldier has a gambling problem. And he's called to deploy to an active war zone. Now let me make a few wagers. Yeah, there's a joke there. I bet he will not have a problem with gambling as he fights from one foxhole to the next. I have a funny suspicion... That as he spends day and night thinking about how am I going to get home alive, he will not give a rip about the spread for Monday night football. Oh, would we stop laying in our beds coveting and lusting, but lay in our beds praying for our neighbors to hear the gospel. Let us pray for Ebola to be eradicated. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters in prison in the Middle East. If we take ground for the kingdom, we will not have time or need for idolatry. Half-hearted devotion leads to idolatry. Next point, half-hearted devotion shows its greatest impact on the next generation. That should be half-hearted devotion, hurts impact on the next generation, not Hurst impact on the next generation. That was written prior to coffee this morning. All right. Look at verse 8 through 10. We'll start with verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who'd seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of a hundred and ten years. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Harras, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all the generations also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord. Or the work you had done for Israel. (laughs) You were talking about the very next generation after Moses. Just swallow that for a second. God marched them out of Israel. He conquered for them people they had no business conquering. And the very next generation doesn't even know the Lord or the work of the Lord i got to be honest, this, was, this, this point just kept me from being able to squeeze this into one sermon. I didn't see this at first. And the more I focus on verse 10, it really struck me. Watch the progression. One generation fails to conquer kingdom ground, but still manages to somewhat serve the Lord. We see that in verse 7. The people, these are the very people who he just said failed to conquer the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Those who had seen the great work of the Lord done for Israel. Meanwhile, the full consequence of their apostasy would not be felt until the next generation. Verse 10. And there arose another generation after him who did not know the Lord or the work the Lord had done for Israel. There is almost nothing more confusing to a child of Christian parents than half-hearted devotion to the faith from his or her parents. They grow up with one foot in and one foot out. You can almost guarantee that any child raised in a home of parents who are only partially devoted, that child, you can almost guarantee, will abandon the faith. There's a sort of three-generation epidemic that happens. Grandparents fully devoted to the church, raise their children in the church. These children become parents and given their upbringing, they feel a certain obligation to at least go to church on a similar, semi-regular basis. They don't really regularly read the word or talk about their faith or repent of their sins or engage others in the gospel. They're enamored with the things of the world, but they feel guilty for not going to church, so they at least go. They encourage their children to be moral, but don't encourage real devotion to Christ you can almost guarantee those kids will stop going to church altogether. Why? Because the guilt for not going to church that their parents could not get over, they have no problem getting over. They see no need for church because they were confused as how it ever really benefited their parents anyway given their lifestyle. Now I say almost guarantee because while... It's true. That's generally true. By God's grace, it's not always true. God in His graciousness will bring a new heart, a new longing for the faith, the gospel to anyone at any time by the grace of God. Some of my dear friends are testaments of that. So there are children raised in half-hearted, or raised with parents who are half-hearted in their devotion to God who will gain a fresh love for the things of God. Conversely, there are children of fully devoted parents that can and do turn their their back to the things of God. But no child, I've, I've never seen this. There's no child of a fully devoted parent who can turn their back to the things of God without a lot of wrestling and a lot of toil. It's a burden they will be forced by God's grace to carry with them always. They will have to work to turn their back. To the things of God. It's a precious gift. That a Christian. A devoted Christian parent gives to their children. It's a burden of belief. In my life. A pivotal moment came. My sophomore year of college. I'd seen multiple friends. Turn their back on the faith. Multiple. I'd seen many folks who claim Christ. Just completely squander their witness for Jesus. On a college campus. I was taking a world religion class with a very humble, kind uh, atheist. In my freshman year, I'd been greatly helped by an agnostic physics professor who was a great husband, father, and professor. To be honest, there were some temptations in my life to sin, in particular sexual sin, that I wanted to freely enjoy without feeling bad. All of that led me to a crisis of belief. And I can remember very clearly a conversation I had with my dad standing in the kitchen. For me to ever remember something clearly means it had a big impact. I told him I was not sure about my faith and about the claims, the truth claims of Christianity. Now, when you are a pastor's son and you come to your dad who's a pastor and you tell him you're not sure about the faith, you're expecting a shock and awe campaign, right, to be rained down on you i got nothing of the source. He patiently, humbly listened and he said this. Son, you need to ask. And you need to seek this out with great diligence. You need to ask very hard questions and not be afraid. But promise me this. If you find something that you think is more true than what the Bible reveals about Jesus Christ, please, Let me be the first to know. I need to know. I have staked my entire life on the truth claims of Jesus. If he is not who he claims to be, I am a fool. You know what made that so convincing? I knew my dad was right. I'd watched him place all his life in the hands of Jesus. I knew that if Jesus was false, my dad was a fool. His full hearted devotion to Jesus built the boat that I was allowed to go explore the faith with. And by the grace of God, and by the grace of God only, I returned much more convinced than ever. Christian parents. Can I ask you, right here, right now, I don't care how old your kids are. I don't care if they're 60. Will you right now commit to full-hearted devotion to the faith? Give your kids a burden of belief that they cannot loosely rid themselves of. God miraculously led the people of Israel out of bondage to slavery. Recall in Exodus 19, he said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Friend, if you are here and you have not placed full trust in Christ, whether you realize it or not, you are in deeper bondage than any Israelite was in Egypt. The Bible describes you as not simply one who is in sin, but one who is in bondage to sin but like god bore the israelites up on eagle's wings so also he has bought your freedom on the cross of christ he did this by punishing his only sinless son jesus on the cross there god treated jesus as an enemy of god Unlike the Israelites who disobeyed by showing mercy on the enemies of God, God would have no mercy on His Son on your behalf. The amazing news of Christianity is that in crushing His Son on the cross, He brought you and I out of bondage if you will believe in Him. Brothers and sisters, Is it not the case that God has called us to mission? Has he not saved us for the opportunity to advance his kingdom? Now I'm going to assume that you are prayerfully, at least I'm going to prayerfully assume, that you're here thinking, I'm with you Tim, but I don't know exactly what the next step is. Okay, Um, I hope that's it. Uh, Here's some next steps. And I've got time for another sermon, so... No, okay. Here's the next steps. First, honestly recognize your calling before God to see disciples made for Jesus. That is what we mean by advancing the kingdom. I ask you, very first step, today, before you go to bed, would you carve out 10 minutes? I like the... um, uh, suggestion that our Brother Richard gave me that he uses sometimes. He says, I just have to put a timer and say, I'm sitting here for 5 minutes or 10 minutes or 15, whatever it is. Set a timer if you need to. Sit down for 10 minutes. Nothing else to do. And ask God this question. Is my life being used to its fullest to make disciples for you? If you realize the answer is no, Would you, right then, right there, repent? Would you repent of partial obedience? And then, would you be willing to pray promises like this? This has helped me so much this week. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. You will reap. Or Second Peter chapter 3. The day of the Lord will come. It's coming like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Second Peter chapter 3. Now you say, why those promises? I think those promises are so important. Because I think one of the hardest things we have to fight for not gaining more ground for Christ is we see it as futile. We see people that we reach out to for the gospel of Christ reject it. We see those who we want to see go further in their Christian walk really show no desire. We see that we set a goal to just pray more regularly and we don't. I need promises like that where the word of God says You just keep sowing and you will reap. You can be promised that the day is coming that the Lord will come again. I think that's really helpful. Next, will you share with another believer your desire to better serve the kingdom? And then, what's going to happen? I can promise you this will happen. You're going to get excited. And then you're going to get scared <laughs> again. Remember, just the second time you've been scared, right? First time you're scared going, it's never going to work. Now you're excited again because you told somebody else, and now you're scared again, right? This is my life, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Jesus himself says in the ear of the Apostle Paul. I love this for two reasons. Number one, Jesus himself said it. And number two, the Apostle Paul needed to hear it. I find so much comfort in both of those. My grace, it's sufficient for you. My power, it's made perfect in what? Weakness. That's what He wants. So when you find yourself and you go, there's no way He's going to use me to break ground for the kingdom. Then go, "Uh uh-oh, He's about to use me. There's only one type of person God won't use. A proud person. Remember, Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Do you remember what God was telling them when he's telling them, you're going to make sure you fully thrash all these people? Do you remember that one line in there? Now, they are much stronger than you are. (laughs) I just love that about God. Now, I don't just want you to beat them. I want you to send them packing, right? They are much stronger than you are. They will trash you. But I'll do it. That's exactly what God wants. He wants a group of people in a small church where there's a lot of empty pews. He wants them to get serious and get in the ear of God and say, I am more than willing. I want to roll up my sleeves and I want to believe, but I am really weak and we need a lot of help. God says, perfect. This right here is where my power is made sure in your weakness. We look at empty pews and go, Oh my, nothing we can do. God looks at empty pews and says, this is exactly how I like it. This is how I work. Let's pray.